Welcome to Radioactive Magazine. We will be talking with University of Kansas Professor Carl Brooks about the history of leadership struggles in the United States Congress and the threats they have posed to the nation. Carl was born in Boise, Idaho. He received a bachelor's from Yale, a master's of science from the London School of Economics, a JD from Harvard, and a PhD in, in history from the University of Kansas. He has served as a state senator in Idaho. He has been the regional administrator of Region 7 of the Environmental Protections Agency, EPA, which serves Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska, plus nine tribal nations headquartered in Olathe. And he has held several university teaching positions between different positions in EPA and courts administration. In the midst of that, he has written two books and edited a third on the history of environmental law and published a bunch of uh, a number of other um, serious um, research papers in various um, places. First, Carl, please correct any errors in that brief bio and add anything else you'd like. No, Spencer, I think you got it all. I've uh, had, a, had an interesting career that brought me here to Lawrence, Kansas about 25 years ago. Mm hmm. Well, I'm sure I didn't get it all, but Alex, but we wouldn't have time for all of it. So tell us about your experience with the United States Congress. Sure. It started some time ago. I was a staff member for the Democratic United States Senator from Idaho, Frank Church. A number of your listeners might remember Senator Church. He was a forthright liberal from the state of Idaho, took on President Lyndon Johnson over the Vietnam War. Uh, I staffed the senator both in D.C. when I was in what? college. Can you turn the stand off there? Because I'm still I'm getting in that crisis. Okay. I'm sorry, Carl. Um, we got him. So the House seems now to have a speaker, Mike Johnson. Summarize for us the process by which he was elected. Well, typically, the majority party in the House selects one of their members to become the Speaker of the whole House. The party of the majority votes for that guy. The minority party typically votes for their leader, which means the majority chooses the Speaker. Um, it worked out a lot differently than that here over the last month in the U.S. House of Representatives. The procedure was quite different. Yeah. Yeah. So. so right. So. How would you compare that process with the selection of previous speak speakers? Well, it's pretty unusual for a sitting speaker to be dethroned. Kevin McCarthy, who had been the speaker for barely a year, was pushed out a window uh, by votes from his own Republican majority. That's very unusual. In fact, it hasn't happened for more than 125 years. What was even more remarkable is that the next two people that the House conference decided to put up as their speaker were also defeated internally. So there's clearly uh, a rebellion going on inside the House Republicans, and that's very unusual. Um, it's got some parallels from the past, but it's very unusual. That's not how things normally work in the U.S. House. Yeah. So what's the... Um, what's the... Okay, I'll turn off this mic. Excuse me. We're we're forgive me. We've got, we've had problems with the audience with with her. Okay. 
So I'm still, we're still getting echoes. I don't know what the problem is. Um, in any case, talk to us about how does this process compare with what's, what are the big previous examples that you'd like well, to I mention? Gotta, sure. I got to say, Spencer, that my historian mind goes back to the last time the United States House was convulsed like this. It was in the years leading up to the Civil War. Uh, in basically four or five years, the House had multiple ballots to try to choose a speaker. It was a sign of the collapse of the two-party system that had governed the United States for 40 years up to that point. There was huge tension within the House. It was over the issue of slavery, uh, both in the late 1850s and then just literally the year before the Civil War broke out. It took dozens and dozens of ballots to finally choose a speaker. That's really the only kind of parallel that I can see to what's been going on here over the last month. I'm not saying that this is a prelude to civil war. I'm just saying we've not seen anything like this for more than 150 years. Yeah, but we, we've we also seen people storming the Capitol wearing T-shirts to say Civil War 2.0. That's right. To see a man carrying a Confederate flag standing in the uh, hallway of the United States Senate would have caused my former boss, Frank Church, to erupt. Um, it was a very different time 40, 50 years ago that Congress worked so much differently than it does now. Um, it was it was constructive. Sure, there was fierce debate back and forth between the parties, obviously fierce debate over huge issues like civil rights in Vietnam, but nothing like the polarization and the viciousness that you see now inside both the House and to some degree the Senate, too. Right. So... Talk about the consensus within the Republican Party behind this selection of Mike Johnson as a speaker. You know, I think it's probably less a consensus than almost a convulsion. The Republican Party, the majority just by a handful of seats, has empowered a speaker who represents the most extreme elements of that party. Uh, you know, the speaker, Kevin McCarthy, although a conservative, was a little bit more of a you might say an institutionalist committed to making the Congress work as well as it could. Uh, the new speaker, Johnson from Louisiana, looks to me like one of the more extreme members of that House caucus. He's from an extremely conservative part of the country. His district is probably one of the more red districts in the country, and he's now leading the People's House, which is pretty startling. So... What are some alternative scenarios for the coming year with him as speaker? Well, one thing that historians are good at is saying we don't do predictions as much as we look in the rearview mirror. So I'm not much of a fortune teller. I'd probably be a stock market investor if I was. But I don't see any slowdown in the rate of tension between the Democrats and the Republicans in the House. I think it's going to continue to build. Uh, I think the Prices coming up over keeping the United States government funded, which has to be worked out in less now than three weeks, is going to be the first test for how the new speaker is going to run things. Early indications are that he's going to try to keep the government open but extract what he thinks are big concessions to extreme policy proposals. From there, heading into an election year, Spencer, 
Uh, it looks to me like a prescription for more polarization, more hostility, more vitriol, and not a very functional U.S. Congress, frankly. Right. There are currently 221 Republicans and 212 Democrats and two vacancies in the U.S. House. That suggests that if five Republicans voted with the Democrats on something, they'd have 217 votes versus 216 for the Republicans. What's the you chances might, of that? Well, you might think that's a possibility for some cross-party or cross-aisle cooperation. I think we saw what happened with that during this speaker uh, clown circus. The two Republicans who expressed some interest in potentially working with Democrats were shot down within their own caucus. There's no room for compromise. There's hardly any room for conversation between the two parties right now. Well, but it only takes five. Uh, I, I would have thought them? about I would have thought about two weeks ago when some of the Republicans rebelled against Jim Jordan becoming the speaker that there would be a handful of what I'd call principled moderate conservatives who were loyal to the institution of the House of Representatives and felt there was a possibility for working in some sort of a bipartisan fashion. I don't see that there at all with the new Speaker Johnson. I think the Republicans are going to be looking at loyalty tests. I think there'll be uh, desires to whip the party into pretty extreme policy positions. And that doesn't bode very well for working across the aisle with Democrats. So how's that going to play out in the election next year? Uh, one, one thing I think you can say if you're thinking about winners and losers, obviously Mike Johnson, the new speaker, is a winner. Uh, the more extreme members of his majority caucus, like Getz and Boebert and Taylor Green, are winners. But Donald Trump is a winner, too. You know, Trump pretty much uh, forced the number four ranking Republican, a guy named Emmer from Minnesota, to back out. Trump put his finger on that scale. He's indicated that Johnson is his man in the Republican House. Republicans will be doing everything they can to help Donald Trump campaign for president, doing everything they can to make the current president's life miserable. I saw that Johnson promised to intensify the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Spencer, that kind of high stakes, high voltage rhetoric is going to be uh, intensified during an election year. Is is there any substance that you've seen to the uh, impeachment process against Biden? I'd have to say no. And I think most fair minded observers come to the same conclusion. I mean, if the Republicans have something up their sleeves or hidden behind the curtain that hasn't come out yet. Uh, it appears to be a rehash of matters that the Department of Justice looked into under Donald Trump and concluded there was no there there. Uh, there have been a lot of big promises and bold statements, but almost no evidence has come out that indicates anything other than the president's son made some really bad decisions. And the president has a son who's had obviously really serious problems in his life. None of those rise to the level of impeachable offenses, most fair-minded observers would say. And and Biden has not yet stepped in to um, pardon his son preemptively like, like Trump has did to many of his um, questionable characters. 
Sure. I mean, you can say what you want about Joe Biden, but the guy is a believer in the validity of the institutions of the Congress. He's a man of the Congress, spent 40 years in the Congress. He's a believer in the functioning of democracy. Uh, I think he would not do anything like that. He's kept his hands off the Department of Justice, special prosecution of Trump. I, I doubt he's going to take any steps at all to pardon his children. Now, that would be so on Joe Biden, I'd be stunned. Right. It, it, Mike, talk to us more about the 1859-1860 speaker uh, uh, challenge. Sure. Process. If, if you look back, it's almost a study in a slow motion collapse into secession and armed conflict. The Democrats who were predominantly from the South uh, wanted somebody who was going to defend slavery and defend their sectional secessionist views. Uh, the handful of Northern Democrats who wouldn't go along with that made it impossible for the Democrats to choose their candidate. In the end, a sort of genial non-entity from New Jersey, a man named Pennington, was selected simply because no one hated him enough to vote against him. Pennington tried what little he could do to hold the country together. There wasn't much in 1960 he could do to forestall that. He lasted one term in the Congress. He was defeated at the next election, went home, and passed a year or two later. So uh, I think the Pennington example is probably the collapsing of the last few timbers under the republic at that point that the house couldn't even come to a, a selection of a speaker except by choosing somebody who was known by by none and hated by hardly any and that didn't really work yeah he my reading he was um he uh yeah he what it uh he, he served a full term right i mean he was right. Elected as a speaker on February 1 of 1860, and he left, uh, I think, in early March of 1861. And by the time he left, the, the seven Confederate states had, had already seceded, the, the deep, all the Deep South, and had met in Montgomery, Alabama, and, and that there were the Upper South, Virginia, North Carolina, uh, Arkansas and Tennessee had not yet seceded. Am I right? I think I'll I'll go ahead and say you're probably right. I I'm not necessarily a Civil War historian expert, but that sounds about right. Yeah, Pennington is is really nothing more than a, a footnote on the way to Civil War. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we uh, uh, let me find my notes here. We are speaking with Carl um, Brooks, a professor at the University of Kansas, about the history of leadership struggles in the U.S. Congress and the threats they have posed to the nation. So, so yeah, so in any case, after General Stanley McChrystal uh, noted that uh, that those four states in the Upper South seceded only after Lincoln asked to raise 75,000 militia to, to stop the rebellion. Okay. I, 
Yes, I, I have heard about that statement by former General McChrystal. I, it's an interesting counterfactual. I, we can talk about it if you want. I, I'd have my own opinion, but that's about what it's worth is my opinion. Yeah, well, that's, but you, 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 I'm a, I've also note that the that current policy assumes a certain certain claims that past policies were correct, and I think there's a an important role for counterfactuals to uh, to question those kinds of things. Uh, one um, contributor to the current crisis of political polarization in the U.S. today I, was reportedly the decision by the U.S. Federal Communications Commission um, in, eight, in, in, sorry, in 1987 to suspend the Fairness Doctrine. That allowed the major media to adopt editorial policies with gross contempt for alternative perspectives, blatantly overt, um, especially in regarding um, the part of Rush Limbaugh. Your comment? I think that the media landscape we're looking at now in 2023, Spencer, differs so fundamentally from the way things looked back in 1987 that reviving a fairness doctrine would probably be a good debating topic, but not likely to happen politically. I, I think that the media landscape, both economically and technologically, has changed so fundamentally that it would be hard to imagine writing a doctrine that would gain support of a majority of the Federal Communications Commission and then not be subject to challenge in front of the United States Supreme Court and potentially congressional amendments as well. Um, the idea that there should be a wide diversity of opinions, no one can disagree with that. The idea that major media companies who get their licenses from the public have responsibility to educate the public about facts and, and lies, that's true too. Establishing that as a governing doctrine for regulating communications companies in the world in which we live now seems uh, probably unlikely to put it mildly. Right. So let me change the subject. You're... you're title at KU is Professor of the Practice. What is Professor of the Practice? I, I smile because in a way, it's a term applied to us retreads. I was a KU professor for about a decade before President Obama nominated me to head EPA here in the heartland. So I'm coming back for a second act at KU, <laughs> a little older, a lot grayer, uh, maybe some different experiences. And the Professor of the Practice is somebody who can bring those experiences into the classroom. So when I teach courses in public administration, I can share with students um, what it's like to be in the midst of a large organization, some of the things you learn about making it work, some of the symptoms you look for for organizations that need fixing. Um, anyway, we're, we're just, we're practical people who've had some gray hairs and experience. That's what that term means. Craig has a question. Okay, <clears throat> Carl, the question I've got is that when Jim Jordan was not nominated, um, what I was hearing was that part of the problem was that the mainstream Republicans would not support him because they were afraid they might lose next year if they have somebody that right wing. But more I'm hearing about this Johnson, he sounds more right wing than Jim Jordan ever did. 
Am you I know, Craig? Yeah, sure. Sorry, go ahead. Well, so, so what's your opinion on that? And what, how did Johnson get the nomination being that far to the right that Jim Jordan did, couldn't get? First off, your statement that Johnson represents about the most extreme elements of the current Republican Party is correct. If you look at statements and positions that he's taken on everything from uh, civil rights, equality, freedom to choose, environmental regulation, climate change, the role of religion in American life, he occupies the extreme margin of the Republican Party. Um, that's where the party's moving. He's out there <laughs> leading the charge. Probably the substantive difference between him and Jordan is he was largely unknown. He hadn't made any enemies inside the caucus. He had a genial public image so that the Republicans could say, we're appointing somebody who isn't well, well enough to have earned any real enemies like Jordan. I think Jordan has probably destroyed most of his relationships with anybody on the Democratic side and the bullying tactics that he used to try to become speaker peeled away a lot of Republicans who felt that they were being not just politically threatened, but personally threatened as well. So let me go back to Professor of the Practice. Uh, I read the, the, there's a, the Wikipedia article on Professor talks about Professor of the Practice. It said it, it can be a, is typically a, a permanent position, but without tenure. Your comment? I'd say... <laughs> Well, the last part is true. I don't have tenure anymore. I was a tenured faculty member at KU up until 2010 when I joined EPA. I am not tenured now. Uh, I'm on a contract. I'm on a multi-year contract there, uh, but those contracts are not permanent. So they're uh, they're secure, but not permanent. And I'm happy with secure, but not permanent. Sure. Between 2020 and 2022, you were the court executive officer for the 8th Judicial District court in the state courts of New Mexico and Taos. What does a court executive officer do? It's a fantastic job. You basically get to do all the fun stuff that helps the court operate. Uh, you manage personnel, facilities, budget, IT, security. Uh, since I'm a lawyer, I was also doing a little bit of legal research for the judges. Um, you hire people, you promote people, you interact with all the different governmental entities that deal with the courts, such as counties, the state government, the Supreme Court of New Mexico. You're sort of like the term indicates you're a chief executive officer, but you don't make decisions on the bench. Uh, basically, whatever happens up behind the judges, that's what the CEO and our staff team was doing. And I was responsible to the judges for making the staff work right and to make sure that we were in a good place with all the different other governments that help the court system operate. So, it's a fantastic position. I mean, for somebody who's been around the legal system for 40-some years as a practicing lawyer, as a trial lawyer, to see how courts operate, to see the high-quality people who work for court staff, and to see judges you know, outside the courtroom with their sleeves rolled up trying to make decisions about personnel, budget, hiring, that was fascinating and Taos was a wonderful place to live we love living there yeah yeah so and and uh, uh, another perk of the job was if someone was unhappy with a, a judicial decision they did not come after you <laughs> they did not although we did have you know this is a symptom of what I guess is tr so much that's going on that's troubling in America we did have litigants who were 
abusive towards staff who made threats toward judges. And a couple of times uh, I had to work on behalf of the judges to make sure that the state police and the county sheriffs up in the northern part of New Mexico were aware of these threats, were aware of these individuals. And in some cases, we were successful in barring them from coming into courthouses because they posed a threat because of things that they'd said or written. Yeah, you get a visit from the sheriff. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, we we hear you, right? So what can you tell yeah, us about I, other elections between the Civil War and, and 2023 when the election of the speaker took more than one ballot? Well, in the middle 1850s, uh, there was a ballot for speaker that took, I think, 133 different votes before finally a gentleman from Massachusetts named Nathaniel Banks was chosen as the speaker. Uh, again, it was directly a result of collision between the slave power in the South and the anti-slavery forces that were beginning to coalesce around the new Republican Party. Um, Banks represented that party. Uh, he lasted just two terms as speaker, and then he returned to his home state of Massachusetts, where he was the Civil War time governor of Massachusetts, a very effective one. Mm -hmm. I, I think historians look back at that period in the middle 1850s. This was in the aftermath of Bleeding Kansas, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the armed conflict that was going on along the border in eastern Kansas. Uh, it was a year or two before John Brown's raid into Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. And they look at that speaker election and they say that was a symptom of the beginning of the collapse of the party system and a collapse of the sort of consensus, the national consensus that had helped Congress operate. And so that's why you're concerned about uh, about um, the current situation. Well, I think any any thinking person who cares about American government, who cares about the American experiment, should be concerned about what's going on in the House of Representatives, uh, partly because the speaker has been chosen who represents such an extreme point of view, partly because of the language and the rhetoric that's being used. Um, there are historians who study the Congress closely who are concerned that the kind of language and rhetoric and sort of performative uh, activity is leading toward physical conflict in the Congress. Um, it would not surprise me that there would be some pushing and shoving among members of the Congress if things continue down the present path. Um, you know, these are these are volatile, difficult times. And, um, you know, one of the parties has chosen a very confrontational attitude and a gentleman to lead them whose views put him well outside the American mainstream. Who, who, who How that turns out, it's it's difficult to predict, but I suspect we're not going to see a period of <laughs> Almond consensus emerging in the House of Representatives. Who may not be a gentleman after all. He may not, a, a, a gentleman who may not be so gentle, right? Right. Yeah, on the floor of the House, they always talk about the honorable gentleman from such and such a place. And that's or a good the term. I, mean, gent I was a member gentle of the legislature. Woman, right? You would refer to someone with whom you disagreed as the senator from such and such, Bonneville County or Bonner County. Because it didn't personalize the disagreement. It kept it at an institutional level. And it was just one of those somewhat old-fashioned but effective techniques of taking the personal vitriol and the personal threat out of intense debates. There was a time in the early 1800s when I think one senator caned another, beat him brutally and 
shortened his life, I guess, right? That's right. It was, uh, again, in the aftermath of Bleeding Kansas, a Massachusetts United States senator named Charles Sumner was caned nearly to death on the floor of the Senate by a representative from South Carolina. Uh, I don't think I'm any relation, but the South Carolinian's name was Brooks, Preston Brooks. Uh, Sumner suffered grievous neurological injuries that shortened his life, uh, kept him out of the Congress for two or three years. Again, these are the kinds of activities that were happening in the four to five years leading up to Lincoln's election and the secession of the South that they were symptomatic of a breakdown of national consensus and even an ability of the Congress to serve as a forum for debating policy. Instead, it became like a like a bull ring or a boxing ring. OK, well, uh, we're um, we've got another minute or 30 seconds. Uh, any final words for our audience? Well, sure. First off, it's been great to have a conversation with you and Craig about topics that concern our listeners here in the greater Kansas City area. Um, I, I think that all of us who care about the American experiment have a responsibility to do our part to make sure it keeps operating. Yeah. We have been visiting with the University of Kansas Professor Carl Brooks about the history of leadership struggles in the U.S. Congress and the threats they have posed to the nation. Tune in next week when we will be talking with representatives of Vets for Peace Kansas City about their campaign to restore the original name of Armistice Day. Remember, 11 11 11. Uh, in 1918, the big guns officially fell silent on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, ending the war to end all wars, which of course did not end all wars. Uh, I'm Spencer Graves. Craig Lebeau is at the controls. Thank you for listening.